Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In chapter 11 of his book, The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins asks an age-old question that has been massively central in philosophy and also in other related fields. Are human beings on some basic level fundamentally special and differentiated from the other things that we call animals or from life more broadly speaking. And very often the answer that philosophers have given is something like, yes, we're the rational animal. Dawkins isn't so worried about that. And he's not going to focus in on that in this chapter as what does, in fact, not completely, but in a really significant degree, separate us off from the other animals. He's going to say, in a word, it's something different, culture cultural transmission and even evolution is going to be something central to this kind of being that is human being, this kind of animal. The question then is, is this unique to humans? And he says, no, it's not unique. He brings up the example of birds. He says, the best non-human example I know has been described by Jenkins as the song of a bird called the Saddleback, which lives on islands off of New Zealand. On the island where he worked, there was a total repertoire of about nine distinct songs. Any given male sang only one or a few of these songs, and the males could be classified into dialect groups. So, and he gives some examples here, different dialect groups sing different songs. So this is something that many of us who have listened to birds and have traveled across the country can be familiar with. It's not just saddlebacks. There are other birds that sing different songs. You can even sometimes participate in them. For example, when doves are engaging in their song, you can add a note to it and get them to add a note. And there's a quite complex array of songs. Now, what Dawkins brings up is the fact that every once in a while, the songs would change. And the new song, originally tweeted, I suppose you would say, not sang by the bird, perhaps as even a mistake or an aberration, some sort of mutation would get picked up by other birds and it would now become part of the repertoire and you could associate it with different dialects. Very interesting, right? He also talks about, as examples here, you know, he says, Song in the Saddleback evolves by truly non-genetic means. There's other examples of cultural evolution in birds and monkeys. And then he says something really important here. But these are just interesting oddities. These are not absolutely central to the mode of existence and the way in which things develop for those species. And, you know, maybe that's a little debatable, but we'll put that to the side. It's very clear that with human beings, culture is absolutely central to us. And he, he goes on and he says, it's our own species that shows what cultural evolution can do. Language is only one example out of many, and he gives a whole bunch of others. Fashions in dress and diet, ceremonies and customs, art and architecture, engineering and technology. These are examples. And he says that, you know, we also have to point out the vast diversity of this. He says, we have to be able to explain the immense differences between human cultures around the world from the utter selfishness of the ick really recent uh, phenomenon 
phenomenon. They're a tribe that was studied by an anthropologist in the 20th century after going through a terrible catastrophe to the gentle altruism of Margaret Mead's Arapesh. So how do we explain the fact that there are all these interesting cultural manifestations that develop, that get passed on. Can we explain this solely on the basis of genetics? And his answer is no. He says these evolve in historical time and evolve very quickly. If we think about, for example, recent musical trends, you know, if we think about rock and roll, rock and roll is actually not that old. And some of the people who were involved in innovating within it and creating genres such as, for example, classic heavy metal, rock and roll really hadn't been around that long when they are evolving it like that. So he says that all of these evolve in historical time in a way that looks like highly speeded up genetic evolution, but has really nothing to do with genetic evolution. So that's quite interesting. If that's the case, then how do we explain it? Here's where he says that a proper Darwinist perspective would have to go beyond what we might call reigning dogma of Darwinism, which tries to focus on the biological organism as such and genes as the thing that carries that. So focusing on biological advantage of cultural matters, Dawkins thinks, is actually misguided. He says that tribal religion has been seen as a mechanism for solidifying group identity, valuable for a pack hunting species whose individuals rely on cooperation to catch large and fast prey. Frequently, the evolutionary preconception in terms of which such theories are framed is implicitly group selectionist, but it's also possible to rephrase the theories in terms of orthodox gene selection. And he says, listen, maybe some of this actually does work, but it doesn't do much to explain the proliferation and differentiation and evolution of human culture in historical times. So the people who want to trace it just to genes, the people who want to talk just about group selection, this isn't really conveying what we need. And it's not really scientific, you could say. It's essentially pseudo-scientific. So Dawkins suggests going back to, as he calls it, basic principles. And by this, we could say he's actually looking for some basic principles and saying we need to engage in some real inquiry, put, put aside the reigning dogmas and ideas that everybody knows, and let's think about this in a serious way. And I would say that this makes it, you know, properly philosophical in uh, an important way. So he says that these ideas that we have are plausible but they don't begin to square up to the formidable challenge of explaining culture, cultural evolution, and the differences between these cultures. I am an enthusiastic Darwinian, but I think Darwinism is too big a theory to be confined to the narrow context of the gene. The gene is not the sole basis for ideas of evolution, particularly cultural evolution. And he says that the gene can at best provide us with an analogy for a unit of cultural evolution and transmission, that which he's going to call the meme. And we should stop here for a moment and think about what analogy means. So analogy is somewhere in between univocity, saying that these are the same thing, the word refers to the same thing, evolution in both cases is the same process, and complete equivocity where we say, well, these things are not really related to each other at all. There's some sort of connection, some sort of mapping that's possible, but it's a bit more loosey-goosey, and we need to look at things 
more carefully. We don't want to treat an analogy as if it's a blueprint. We want to think about it as an opportunity for thinking matters through. So the gene can provide an analogy for this unit of cultural evolution and transmission. How? Well, he says, let's ask a really basic fundamental question. What is so special about genes? Why do we care about them? Why do we talk about them in the first place? It's not because we want to like, you know, create a hierarchy and discriminate against people. People do that with genes, right? Stupidly, but that's not what people who are serious about studying genes are doing. It's not just so we can make a ton of money fusing genes from one animal or species in general into that of another with biological engineering. No, no, we want to actually understand in this way, what makes genes genes? And the answer, he says, is they are replicators. Now this raises some really interesting points. There could be other types of replicators. What if we went to an alien planet and we discovered that instead of being based on carbon, they were based on other elements, silicon. You know, this happens in sci-fi stories, right? But what if that was the case? Or what if they, instead of using oxygen, use methane? Can we consider these sorts of things? They might not have the DNA molecule. They might have some other mode of replication. He says, the gene, the DNA molecule, happens to be the replicating entity that prevails on our planet. There may be others. If there are, provided certain other conditions are met, they will almost inevitably tend to become the basis for an evolutionary process. When we are speculating about artificial intelligence replicating itself, we're talking about things that are not genetic, but rather based on computer code, right? And so he draws a conclusion from this. He says, do we have to go to distant worlds to find other kinds of replicator and other consequent types of evolution? And the answer is no. So we should think about two things before that. For a long time, DNA was the main type of replicator. As a matter of fact, throughout the long history of life, except for a tiny little blip at the end, some people are calling the Anthropocene, right? The era that where we are dominating the planet as best as we can. We're certainly determining a lot of important things about it. DNA, it was the main replicator. It still is for our bodies, right? That's absolutely central, but it's not the only replicator. And we need to think about, and we're going to come back to this in a moment, what is it that replicators actually have or do? What qualities make them replicators? Before that, though, he says, a new kind of replicator has recently emerged on this very planet. It's staring us in the face. It is still in its infancy, still drifting clumsily about on its primeval soup. Right? There's part of the analogy to the soup that produced DNA. But already it's achieving evolutionary change at a rate that leaves the old gene panting far behind. The new soup is the soup of human culture. There's a little bit of circularity here that I think we have to be careful of because what is culture? Well, culture itself is filled up with these new kinds of replicators. What is the new soup? Well, it's that of culture. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Let's think about this more in terms of dialectics and put that question aside for a moment and come back to something really important. What makes something replicators? So earlier on in the book, Dawkins brought out three key features longevity. 
they will remain around for a while. They're not just like, well, I mean, even animals that only exist for a day and then die off, they have DNA, right? But they're part of a long process. And in general, genes can survive for a long time. And the new kind of replicator that he's talking about here, cultural transmission can as well. Fecundity, reproducing themselves in significant numbers so that they can spread and then compete against each other or, you know, find out other relations with each other. Finally, copying fidelity, which means that as you're self-reproducing, as you're replicating, you're not introducing a lot of noise compared to signal. You're preserving something that's identifiable, if not as a philosophical essence, at least as a stable configuration for the most part. And Dawkins thinks that the units of cultural evolution and transmission that he's going to talk about as memes, in fact, fit this bill. Now, one thing that we should point out at the very end of this, is this really a radically new theory on Dawkins' part, or is he rediscovering what other thinkers, other theorists have done in other fields? It's really the latter. This is not a radically new idea. As a matter of fact, you can find it brought up in sci-fi by various people. You can find it in other fields, such as, say, semiotics or other studies that are connected with language and culture. But Dawkins very helpfully coins a phrase and frames this in his, you know, Darwinian context. And I think it's quite useful to think about this analogy. Part of the issue as well is this shows us that there would be genetic evolution on the one side, and then there would be cultural evolution, and there can be connections between them, but they are distinct from each other rather than one being reducible to the other as many other theorists of these matters have tried to argue. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.